The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 17, Old Testament False History. This is part two of our two-part series on responding to the critic. Max Doubt attacks my position of respect for the Bible because, he says, it is full of false history. Quote, The sciences of Egyptology and Palestinian archaeology have reached a consensus. Ancient Israel was never in Egypt. So, no ten plagues, no exodus, no wanderings, and no conquest of Canaan. The first Israelites were Canaanites. He goes on to claim that I am an ignoramus in comparison to his own enlightened understanding of things. If Wise has studied the Bible, then he must know that most of the stories were written long after the supposed events, and those characters who are not completely fictional are mainly propaganda props. Is Wise familiar with the documentary hypothesis or the synoptic problem? I doubt it but these have been the main focus of real biblical scholarship for over a century. The following is the Christian Atheist's reply to Max Doubt, somewhat expanded and revised. Foolish and inadequate, as I truly am, I am enough of a philosopher and logician to sense grandiose and arrogant claims to knowledge concerning real biblical scholarship and consensus that cloud-clear thinking. You would be much more effective and difficult to dismiss as a critic, Max, if you didn't feel the need to constantly overstate your position. You are correct that there is, as I understand it, no direct archaeological evidence of the Hebrews in Egypt. Fair enough. Let me help you a bit. It is possible, given this lack of additional evidence, that the exodus and subsequent narrative is fictional. This is a reasonable conclusion from the extant archaeological evidence. Mere possibility from a lack of evidence, though, is not a good claim to positive knowledge about something, especially when you start by excluding and denying the one source of evidence to the contrary. Atomic substructure for material reality had no evidence either until the evidence was found. As we learn more, I may be willing to cede your conclusion, but a basic rule of inductive logic is that absence of evidence is not always evidence of absence, and leaping to a conclusion even in the face of good, but thin, reason is not good logical policy. Intellectual humility is in quite short supply in today's hyperpartisan world, but appeals to ignorance remain informal fallacies. And mumbling incantations like consensus of opinion and real biblical scholarship don't change the facts or the logic. Given what appears to be an historical presentation, one may be justified in provisionally accepting its truth. That may signals the contingency of future revelations, new evidence, something that at present we don't know, 
That is, given only slight reason to disbelieve the historicity of the biblical narrative, one may be rationally justified in believing it. And, even as doubt is entertained, it is best to withhold judgment rather than pass it arrogantly for purposes of promoting one's agenda. Motivated reasoning is not always bad. When Niels Bohr injected the quantum into his model of the atom, he made up rules ad hoc because they would save the model. But it can be extremely dangerous and lead you far astray. Apparently, you would have been one of those experts who declared the Bible utterly ridiculous for speaking of a Hittite empire, only to have it discovered in the late 19th and early 20th centuries by archaeology. Because only the Bible mentioned the Hittites, scholars relegated them to mythological status. Egg on face for those experts, when a simple willingness to acknowledge, humbly, their own ignorance, to keep their claims in line with the evidence, would have saved their reputations. Or perhaps also the story of Heinrich Schliemann is noteworthy here. The consensus of opinion among the archaeological community was that the Greek stories of the Trojan War, Mycenaean Agamemnon, were entirely fictional, mythological, and that it was a fool's errand to look for them. Until Heinrich Schliemann, a dilettante and self-made archaeologist, found them in the late 19th century. Pretensions to wisdom and knowledge, besides being foolish, can be dangerous, as you are often not just making a mistake, but carrying others over the precipice with you. I am not willing to claim that Atlantis never existed simply because, as yet, it hasn't been found. I am willing, though, to entertain both possibilities, its reality and its falsity, until I know better. It was Socrates who most clearly taught the dangers of arrogant claims to knowledge. In my youth, I disliked him intensely. But as I've matured, his wisdom justifies the title Father of Philosophy. We would do well in our age to follow his lead more carefully. If the Bible is as full of false history as you maintain, then there should be a definitive expose displaying its clear violation of what we, in fact, know about history, not what we think we know. What are the examples of flagrant anti-historicalism that would justify such a claim as that which you make here? My experience has been that the records we have from the time periods in question are in pretty good accord with the Bible. Again, in order to prove a desired point, you overstate your position, making yourself appear foolish. What is truly amazing is that the Bible has largely withstood the onslaught of modern historical and archaeological scholarship, which has not exactly been underachieving through the 19th and 20th centuries and into the 21st. Again, I am no expert here, so I am willing to learn more. But I'm also a lifelong student of such things, and to date, I am struck far more by what the Bible is than by what it is not. As to the documentary hypothesis, you threw me for a loop at first, as we called it the higher criticism in my day. But yes, I am familiar with it and with the synoptic problem, neither of which present much threat to accepting the Bible as it stands. The same sort of critical lens is placed on William Shakespeare, 
denying that he wrote his plays, which seems utterly preposterous to me, and many other serious Shakespeare scholars. There is value in seeking to look at historical works in this way, but it is, again, one possible view, and such historical reconstructions remain working postulates that may, or may not, be getting at something true. That the Genesis account, for instance, is a compendium of stories of disparate origin seems obvious to me, but doesn't effectively argue against the meaning and power of the text. And the synoptic problem is not really a problem at all. Why should we care that Matthew, Mark, and Luke shared a common literary source? What difference does that make? The text is still the text. Again, in this process, you utter a magical term that is supposed to make it clear that anyone who believes the Bible is an ignoramus. But calling the higher criticism and the synoptic problem the main focus of real biblical scholarship does not make your case stronger in the least. I might well say that real archaeologists wouldn't waste their time looking for Troy and Mycenae. And that they were mythological was the consensus of the archaeological community, another magical term meant to silence dissent. But their discovery is no less real as a result. Max continues, God is credited with condoning, commanding, and committing the killings of over two million men, women, children, and babies. And that's only where specific numbers are mentioned, so we're not counting the flood the ten plagues, and many other plagues and punishments and most of the cities genocided by Joshua and his berserker army under God's command. Of course, none of that is historical. I chuckle each time I read that, for the problem for believers is only a problem if it is historical, right? Otherwise, these are just stories, useful fictions. I am willing to entertain that possibility along with you as a possibility. But I would make the case that the power and wisdom of the Bible remains, even if they are fictions. As to the problem, though, I too struggle with this issue. It is another of those with which an honest faith must grapple. There are easy answers for commanded genocide, God's sovereignty over his creation, for example. But I do not think they should easily salve us we are taught by the Bible itself that human life is sacred, that each of us possesses the spark of the divine. We are forbidden to arbitrarily take human life, told to treat others as we want to be treated. A defensive war is one thing, but as you suggest, Max, the wars of conquest by Joshua, and other like circumstances and figures, and the subsequent genocidal actions should be troubling at the very least and I can understand why this issue would forbid faith for many. It was one of the issues that I felt deeply in turning away from God, and one that whispered in my ear as I returned. How can God do these sorts of things? I at least have no easy answers for this question. Choosing God does not mean you have to have all the answers in place. For me, I look steadily at the Lord Jesus. And then I trust that other issues, even really tough and intractable ones, have an answer. The times, for sure, were different. And the value of human life was held much more cheaply than today. And then I think of Hitler and Stalin and socialist ideology 
and practice in the history of the 20th century. And perhaps no more cheaply, after all. Lastly, Max complains of the New Testament's doctrine of salvation by faith. But all that Old Testament mayhem and butchery is nothing compared to the New Testament doctrine of eternal torture, not for anything you did, but merely for how you believed or failed to believe. Even those who never heard of God, Jesus, or the Bible, as Paul says in Romans, they are without excuse. Ugh. Max's final issue, too, here, is a serious one. It bothered me deeply as a Christian, and I spent years agonizing over it, wrestling with God. The resolution of this issue was nothing short of a theological revolution for me, and the reverberations of my embrace of that revolution cannot be overstated. This answer is implicit as a foundation on which my faith stands, post-looking-glass on an acceptance of tension and paradox that used to militate against faith in God for me. First, though, to correct a theological issue, faith has always been the path to God. This is not unique to the New Testament. For the Christian, Old Testament saints, too, depended upon Christ's sacrifice, as, quote, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 10.4 The purpose of the law was to display human sin clearly, and to point humanity to God as the sole source of cleansing and hope. To point, ultimately, to the once-for-all sacrificial work of the incarnate Son of God. The sacrificial system was designed to display the utter inadequacy of human beings to meet the demands of a just and holy God. Human beings, then, are condemned precisely for what they do, for their failure to live up to the righteousness of God. Faith, trust, belief in God is both a recognition of our own inadequacy and an acknowledgement of God's supremacy our need, and his provision. Faith is a matter of dependence, not mere intellectual assent, of action as well as thought. It is one of the most complex and difficult concepts in human rationality, and I don't think that any of us have adequately plumbed its depths. I certainly have not, and I have spent years seeking to understand. It is another of those divine human paradoxes we confront in considering our relationship with our Creator. When Paul says in Romans that we are without excuse, he is alluding to human awareness of our own sin and to an innate notion of God. I dealt with this issue in podcast number five on Jean-Paul Sartre. This passage suggests that God holds us accountable to whatever light we have been given. And if we have not heard of Jesus or the Bible, we are not summarily condemned for not believing in Christ, but we are still accountable to respond in faith to the light given us, and none of us are without light. And there are two paradigmatic responses to God's light, that of Cain and that of Abel. It is this last sentence that was my theological revolution. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis 18.25. I could trust God to do the right thing, 
even when the doctrines of systematic theology or the words of the Bible itself confused me. God cannot be boxed. C.S. Lewis, as always, was eons ahead of me on this point. He declares of Aslan, the Christ figure, he'll be coming and going. One day you'll see him, and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in, only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know, not like a tame lion. This, too, is a matter of trust. God will do what is right, no matter what our expectations or our theological boxes may demand. Lewis makes a further suggestion in the last battle that allowed for me to put this matter to rest. I do not claim to know God's mind on this matter, but these words bring tears to my eyes, joy to my heart, and encourage faith in my God. Emeth, a Kalormine, enemy of Narnia in battle and follower of the false god Tash, speaks of finding Aslan after passing through the stable door and unknowingly into Aslan's country. His hair was like pure gold, and the brightness of his eyes like gold that is liquid in the furnace. He was more terrible than the flaming mountain, and in beauty he surpassed all that is in the world. Then I fell at his feet and thought, Surely this is the hour of death, for the lion will know that I have served Tash all my days and not him. Nevertheless, it is better to see the lion and die than to be Tisrock of the world and live and not to have seen him. But the glorious one bent down his golden head and touched my forehead with his tongue and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but the servant of Tash. He answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Lord, is it then true that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled so that the earth shook and said, It is false, not because he and I are one but because we are opposites, I take to me the services which thou hast done to him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. But I said also, for the truth constrained me, yet have I been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, Unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. It is Christ that we seek when we search for truth. It is Christ whom we follow as we walk in the way. And it is life we discover as he reveals himself to us and his love overwhelms our being. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side.
I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.